0: This is episode number 238, Nutrition Tips for Endurance Athletes, with Anne Guzman. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day.
1: But when it comes time to get down and dirty and train hard, like you have to be willing to, yeah, you can do it with potatoes, but eat some easily digestible carbohydrates to fuel the work. I think it's a big picture. An athlete needs both, of course, sports nutrition and good daily nutrition, but it's about knowing when you have to kind of step more into the performance nutrition based on how close you are to your training and what you're doing on the bike. And a lot of that has to do with digestion.
0: I'm so glad that you're here listening today because learning more about nutrition is always a good move. And it's just something that you constantly have to remind yourself of because there's so much information out there that it's hard to remember all of it all at once. And that same goes for plant-based nutrition. I'm always working on educating and re-educating myself and sports nutrition as well. And the thing about nutrition is that it isn't just about being lean or overweight. The things that we eat influence everything in our body, from the way that we perform to the way that we sleep to the way that we age. And a really great way to keep track of all of that is with Inside Tracker. Now, you've probably heard me talk about Inside Tracker because I'm a big fan of this brand and this company, but they do blood tests where if you're in the United States, you can just go in and get your blood tested. If you're in Canada, you can actually have somebody come to your house and draw your blood. And they measure over 30 biomarkers. Things like cortisol, things like inflammation, magnesium, vitamin D, ferritin, and so much more. Going to your doctor and just getting a complete blood count test isn't really enough to give you the optimized ranges that you need. And oftentimes, the blood work that you get from doctor's offices are not nearly as comprehensive as the inside tracker tests. And I first discovered these guys because I changed my diet way back in 2013 to a plant-based diet. But I wanted to continue to make sure that I was optimizing and that I was healthy. And I was doing these really long stage races all around the world. And I wanted to just see what does my body look like from a blood test and biomarker perspective when I come back from a stage race? Is the nutrition that I'm giving myself adequate to not only be healthy, but to perform at the highest level on the world stage? And it gave me the peace of mind that what I was doing is actually working really well, and it still is working really well. But there's always room for improvement. And the cool thing about Inside Tracker is that they have done a bunch of research to show you the optimized range of each biomarker as an athlete and how you can add in healthy foods to make these biomarkers look better. And then you can retest and actually see the results. Now, that's so empowering, because a lot of times we're not exactly sure we think we feel better, or we think we're doing the right thing. Or maybe something feels off, and you're just not sure why. And being able to get the data is just amazingly empowering. So for 25% off everything on their website, go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia. I like the ultimate plan, but there are different plans that you can get based on what your needs are. And that's insidetracker.com slash Sonia. Now let's get back in today's guest, Ann Guzman. And Ann Guzman is a registered holistic nutritionist with the Canadian School of Natural Nutrition specializing in sports nutrition. And she also works as a sports nutrition consultant. She believes that athletes often undermine their training by not fueling their bodies with proper nutrition, as well as not timing their nutrition optimally for performance gains. And that is a big question that people often ask me is like, how do I time my nutrition? When should I be eating carbohydrates? How much carbohydrates should I eat? Are carbs bad? And Anne is just a wealth of knowledge on many different topics. As you'll find out, she has a great love of learning and is always life student, But she has a really interesting background. First, her background as an athlete. She was a varsity freestyle wrestler and also became a professional road cyclist, racing both nationally and internationally. She has competed in World Cup races, the 2007 Pan Am Games, as well as racing in Europe. And curiosity and love of learning enabled her to also use her own body as an experiment for recovery and race nutrition. And I can relate with that. I'm definitely my own guinea pig when it comes to a lot of different things. And that is one of the easiest ways and sometimes the hardest lessons to learn. The biggest thing about sports nutrition is that it is very individual and it's all about understanding the basics of it. So this is more of a sports nutrition 101 and then being able to start testing it out on yourself. And as I mentioned, Anne has been her own guinea pig. I've been my own guinea pig. And to some extent, you have to do that as well because everybody's a little bit different. In this podcast, you're going to learn about sports nutrition for activity level, like how much you actually need, depending on how hard you're going. We talk about things like glucose, nutrition for competitive athletes versus just exercising for health, the nutrition pitfalls and mistakes of endurance athletes. Specifically, we talked about carbohydrates, caffeine strategy, and hydration. We talked about the right kind of fatigue because sometimes in the morning, you're just tired when you wake up, but sometimes when you wake up, you really need more rest we talked about supplements and also calorie restriction. Anne included some really great charts about carbohydrates and when to eat them for pre-race nutrition. And I highly recommend going to my website, sanyaluni.com slash podcasts, and check out the show notes for this episode because you can get those free downloads. Anne has also contributed a lot of information that will be really helpful and a great follow-up to this podcast on the Pro Kit, and that is also linked up in the show notes. Now, this podcast wasn't about plant-based nutrition. It was about sports nutrition. But if you're looking to just add in more plant-based foods and you don't know where to start, you don't know what type of foods to eat, I actually put out my own cookbook a couple of years ago. And these are my very own recipes that I've formulated because I think plant-based should be delicious. I think it should be easy. And plant-based isn't just about eating salads all the time. The cookbook is called the Plant Powered Academy Cookbook, and you can get it at moxyandgrit.com, M-O-X-Y and grit.com, or you can go to my website, sanyaluni.com, and click on Eat Plants. I have recently edited and updated this cookbook, so if you've purchased it in the past, I did send out an email, so everybody got the updated version for free, and if you missed it, make sure you send me a message so that you get it. And we also have the Plant Powered Academy Facebook group. There are over 2,300 members in this group and people help each other out. Like, do does anybody have any breakfast ideas? Like that was the post that got a lot of attention this week because not everybody wants to eat oatmeal for breakfast every day. So it's a great community. It's all about collaboration and just helping each other be better and eat healthier foods. And are you signed up for my weekly email newsletter? It's at com slash newsletter, where I write and research for an article every single week. And the articles are usually about mindset and motivation and just working on being your best self. The last newsletter I sent out was about comparison and the insight that you can gain from comparing yourself to other people. So get on my newsletter, com slash newsletter. All right, here's Anne Guzman. And welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Sonia. I've listened to so many of your podcasts. You've joined me on many hikes and learned a lot from your guests. So excited to be
0: here. Yeah, it's funny. Before we hit record, we were saying how we're, we're we're friends, but this is the first time we've ever met like face-to-face. And that's that's kind of the fun thing about the internet. I know. It is
1: bizarre. You feel like you really know people. And then you're like, right. But I do kind of feel like I know you now that we're, we're on the computer. It's similar. You know, we like a lot of the same things.
0: We do, and speaking of um, things today, we're going to be talking a lot about nutrition. And you have you have a, a pretty diverse, um, an interesting background, like kinesiology, nutrition. Can you can you talk about your background just a little bit before we take off?
1: Yeah, I mean it is really diverse. It's something that used to really bother me because I would think, <laughs> wow, where does all this go? But um, I find the older I get, you know, there's I can connect a lot of dots, but. Like you said, I come from a kinesiology background, um, always loved athletics. And my athletic background is, you know, every sport in university. It was wrestling and after university, spinning and and then cycling took over. And then after that, you know, I've continued to learn. I'm a learner, so in many different areas, whether it's in, you know, pharmaceutical sales, or I did some health club management, and then I started my own business, did some racing as uh, in the women's peloton for five or six or seven years, and then now I'm, I'm still running my business for sports nutrition, but I'm actually back in school, so it's never too late to keep learning, and uh, back doing a master's in science and doing some research in bone health.
0: Awesome. So I I have a question about all that, because I'm kind of like you, I have a multitude of different areas of things that I've, I don't want to call myself an expert, but things that I've spent a lot of time learning about and pivoted a lot in my life and in my careers. And for you, like what's given you the courage to do that? Because a lot of people have like imposter syndrome, or they just think that they can't do it if they need to switch things up.
1: Yeah, I would say I didn't always have the courage. In fact, I feel like it's only in the last Three or four years that I've recognized that I think it's a good thing, but before that, actually thought it was a negative thing. And two things changed that for me. One was reading David Epstein's book uh, Range, and the other one was listening one day to Tom Bilyeu in a podcast. And so Tom kind of talking a learner and how he identified with that. And I just remember like that was this moment, and I was like, Oh my god, that's that's me. And then the other one was, you know, in the book range, I had always thought what's wrong with me, like, why do I keep switching careers, and I had labeled myself as, you know, almost a quitter, because I was getting bored, like that was the word I associated with it. And when I read range, it was like, oh, this is interesting. And obviously, there's nothing wrong with being a specialist, like being a neurosurgeon is (laughs) totally incredible or something like that. But I guess he just kind of brought to my awareness that, oh, wow, it's actually very useful to have such a breadth of knowledge and skills because you become relatable. At some point, you really start connecting a lot of dots. And it also allowed me to go back and change my story about myself, which was, oh, you're kind of quitting and getting bored, To No, actually I wasn't getting bored. I wasn't learning anymore. And so that's why I left those positions or those careers. And so looking back, I probably could have reacted differently within those situations if I would have been able to identify that I wasn't learning anymore rather than I'm bored. So, you know, you get older and you look back and you think, okay, so now if I come into that situation, either is there an opportunity to create more learning here? And if not, Maybe it is time to leave and do something new, but like yourself, you know, I do like to learn about a lot of things and I like to produce quickly enough when I'm learning them too. I don't think I'm that, you know, I know you're writing a book because I've heard you talk about it and how hard it is. And I would love to write a book too, but I think that would be so hard because it's such a long time before you produce from that learning. So it takes a really special focus to write a book for several years. Versus if you're writing articles and whatnot, and then you're producing something more quickly. But yeah, I think with the whole pivoting, like for me, it's just, I want the new challenge again. I want to be a beginner again. And the older I get, I recognize that I like hard work. And I want to go through that early grind, where it's frustrating when it's like find a solution or you connect stuff. So that's kind of the way I look at, you know, having so many different previous careers. And I assume I'm going to have many different ones still, which is probably why I went back to school because I was like, okay, I love sports nutrition, but there's something else. So maybe it's a pivot off of sports nutrition, but I wanted to get on the other side and see like, what is it like to do that research that I read all the time? And it's been so enlightening. So again, it's just like, oh wow. Like it really gives me a different perspective. And what I think is super cool is that I feel like I can relate to a lot of people because I've been in so many different. Uh, Careers. Like, how do you think about it? Do you feel like, do you wonder why you do it or do you feel like you know why you do it?
0: Well, first of all, I'll say that that's really powerful insight that you gained about yourself being able to look back at something that you were maybe even a little bit ashamed of to be like, no, like this is awesome. And I know what went, I know not even what went wrong, but I know what was going on when I felt bored. And I know that I I love learning and that's a strength, not a weakness of mine. And now I know how I want to apply it and view the big picture of, you know, connecting lots of dots and being able to bring to the table a diverse amount of knowledge and experience that might be a perspective that other people don't have. And I think that's, that's really, really awesome. Thank you.
1: Yeah. It's something I spend a lot of time thinking about lately. I think the topic of learning should be yeah, maybe I'll write a book about that one day, because <laughs> I feel like um, it doesn't get enough attention. And, you know, it allows you to, to be very humble, because the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And I think that's been especially obvious to me since I've gone back to do research. And my God, I could spend six months learning something. And I realize I'm literally just scraping the top of the iceberg And it could take me a decade before I really get this. And so that's kind of nice because you're not going to get pompous about anything when you're learning like that, right? Which, yeah, I think that's part of my value set anyhow. But yeah, I like that about it. You're always, you always realize, okay, there's a lot more. And I guess the, the trouble there could be that you start thinking you don't know anything. So, you know, the whole imposter syndrome thing, oh my God, there's so much to learn. I don't know anything. How can I even write about this? But I think I just have to remind myself that I know a lot about something compared to someone who's never read about it. And if I can help someone a little bit with what I know, then, you know, I have to frame it that way instead of, oh my gosh, I don't know anything because it's all relative, right? I don't know anything about the inside of my car. I can't fix it. So everyone's paying attention to learning something.
0: Yeah. And it's all about like, who are you comparing yourself to? Whenever you say, I don't know anything. Like if you are comparing yourself to probably 99% of the population in the areas that you've spent time learning about, you probably know more than 99% of the population. But compared to that 1% that might have been spending an entire lifetime working on it, maybe you don't know as much. So the comparison game is always so interesting. Yeah.
1: No, that's a super good point. And you know, I, I spend a lot of time just reading research and communicating with you know, professors on Twitter. And I'm not a professor. I know that a lot of these people are specialized in what they're researching. So I admire that and I want to learn from them. But you're right. And that's when I get the whole, oh, gosh, I know so little. But I really work hard now. And I think the older I get, this is easier to do to just be like, oh, I'm so lucky that I get to communicate with these people. And they're open to communicating with me. And, you know, now I'm at the point where, I don't mind asking them a question that might look really stupid (laughs) to them because they've been doing it for 25 years. But, you know, they're experts. So why not ask them the question? And the amazing thing is, when I listen to them on a podcast, they're also saying, well, we don't know yet. Well, I'm not sure. Well, it's possible, right? Because, well, they're scientists, and that's what science is like. So yeah, I'm always amazed at uh, the humility of people that are just such experts. It's really awesome.
0: All right. So Let's, let's talk about nutrition a bit because I know people are really curious. Um, we've talked about plant-based nutrition extensively on this podcast, but we haven't really dived into the deep end or I don't know if it's dived into the deep end, whatever, but we, we haven't dove into the deep end <laughs> about sports nutrition very much. So like <laughs> when people are looking at their nutrition versus their sports nutrition, how do you fuel yourself differently as an athlete versus just if you're not an athlete, and I know that the label athlete is is one that's interesting for a lot of people, but if people are athletic, they like to use their body, they like to move their body, what considerations do they need to take when looking at their nutrition?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. I'm glad you kind of contextualized it a little bit because the context here is going to be everything. And you're right, anyone that's moving can be an athlete, but to answer the question I would almost want to delineate between someone who maybe exercises an hour a day three times a week and an elite competitive cyclist. Because for that person that might exercise three hours a week, there might not be a big difference between how you would eat if you didn't exercise three times a week. So if you had a good base and you were meeting your protein needs, um, you're meeting your calorie needs, you're... You're eating wholesome food, just spreading it out throughout the day. I mean, if you're working for working out for under 60 minutes, two or three days a week, not necessarily a lot would have to change. So it would depend maybe on the intensity and if you're trying to build muscle versus just trying to improve health and maintain you know some fitness. But that's very different from a competitive athlete. And to me, that's where the more obvious differences come in. Um, not that you wouldn't still you don't want to make sure you had enough carbohydrates to do a 1 hour intense workout if you were in the former category you know there are some small intricacies you want to make sure depending on the type of exercise you were going to do but once you're more in a you know you're putting in a lot more hours in the week it's a lot more intense and let's just say you're competing for the purposes of this like it's more competitive then it becomes very different and you know I actually like to split nutrition into daily nutrition and sports nutrition when I'm talking to an athlete, you know even though you know combined every athlete is obviously consuming both but you know a healthy athlete is a consistent athlete and is an athlete who's going to get injured less and that means that they can train more often. So we can't just focus on the sports nutrition, because that would mean that all we cared about was the hour before the training and what we're doing while we're training, and then maybe the hour after the training. And then, you know, if everything else is garbage, then you're not really a healthy athlete. So, you know, the daily nutrition really for someone who's training a lot, you're thinking about, you know, carbohydrate needs, depending on hours of training and intensity protein needs. And then, you know, fat is almost the last one I would look at because it depends on the caloric needs, but really you're looking at a healthy, wholesome food throughout the entire day and hydration that is going to help you meet the, you know, caloric and energy intake you need based on what you're doing. So it is very much just healthy eating it differs around your training because then you know you have to start keeping things in mind, and that's when I like to differentiate because healthy eating you could have you know really wholesome bean burrito with broccoli and and brown rice, but you're not necessarily going to have that an hour before you go do really hard training, and that's I guess where I I start to draw the line is the timing before training and then what you're doing during training and then the recovery after and where I think sometimes I'm noticing maybe on social media that the two get blended and often I'm going to guess his backfires, but is when someone wants to bring their really healthy eating onto, let's just say the bike, because, you know, an extreme example, right? So we're going to bring broccoli on the bike. Of course we're not going to bring broccoli on the bike, but you know, it's a very low calorie food that's high in fiber and it's not going to provide you with what you need for, a 90 minute plus hard intense training ride. So it's okay. And I think this is, you know, I see a lot of airtime on this on, on Twitter, which, you know, these topics, I don't pay as much attention to anymore. But you'll see people be like, Oh, you can't eat sugar, you know, like, sugar is going to this or sugar is going to that you shouldn't be eating that on the bike. But, you know, you know, you're a professional athlete, that's what you need. So it's, it's having the knowledge to know that yeah you want great wholesome everyday nutrition to meet your caloric and you know calorie needs and protein and essential fats and everything but when it comes time to get down and dirty and train hard like you have to be willing to yeah like you can do it with potatoes but eat some easily digestible carbohydrates to fuel the work um so yeah i think it's it's a big picture. An athlete needs both, of course, sports nutrition and good daily nutrition, but it's about knowing when you have to kind of step more into the performance nutrition based on how close you are to your training and what you're doing on the bike. And a lot of that has to do with digestion, right? So the reason you wouldn't go eat a bean burrito on the bike is, you know, it's a lot of fiber. It's probably going to cause some GI upset. You're not going to access those carbohydrates as quickly as you would something that's easy to digest. And so really it just, the reason for why it changes is important. And just understanding that. Does that and, answer your question?
0: Yeah. And another, I, I just want to continue with that because I think, I think like elite athletes generally know, you know, what you're supposed to be eating. I'm making an assumption, but I think that they do. It's more the recreational athletes are just a little bit unsure of what to eat before a bike ride, because I've, I've seen a variety of, of approaches, let's call it. Like I've seen people who may not understand, you know, sports nutrition eat like ribs or like something like that before a bike ride. One of my good friends did that and he was laying under a tree Uh, not, not too long after. So, you know, what are some things that people should be eating before, let's say an hour before their exercise so that they can feel good and perform and not be lying under a tree?
1: <laughs> Great visual. Yeah, I like to think of uh, like a triangle and then knock it on its side. And with the pointy part being you're about to get on your bike, and then the wide end being like three hours out. So since you said an hour before, I mean, if you're only an hour before an intense workout, I mean, you're pretty much eating simple, easy to digest carbohydrates. So a couple of things you want to say, what can I digest easily? And what's going to actually help me during this workout? Now, I'm assuming that that workout is over 90 minutes in duration, because if you're if you're eating good daily nutrition, you should be able to knock out an hour workout on water. But if you're going for a longer training session, that's over 90 minutes. And even if you're a recreational athlete, a lot of recreational, I'm talking about cycling, triathlon, running, because that's kind of the world that I'm from. So it's a lot of duration, right? So tend to spend more than an hour on the bike, maybe not running, but So if you're an hour out, it would be very much concentrated on simple, easy to digest carbohydrates. But as you go backwards to two hours, three hours, then, you know, when you're in that three, four hour mark, you're having a pretty normal meal. So, you know, you probably wouldn't want to have a rack of ribs because that does take, you know, three to four hours to digest. And that's a a heavier meal. But you can certainly have, you know, your 20 or 30 grams of protein and, you know, a large portion of carbohydrates three to four hours before your training and even you know fat based on what you need calorically but yeah as you get closer just imagine that those macronutrients carbs fats protein kind of tapering down and then as you're getting onto the bike you're at the the tip of the pyramid and at that point you're essentially predominantly eating carbohydrates
0: Okay, so basically, the closer you get to the ride, the more simple carbohydrates you want. And then while you're on the bike, eating easily digestible foods, usually after about an hour, if you fuel properly before the ride.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do, let's say, a three, four hour ride, and I will include, again, more recreational athletes there, because a lot of people are doing grand Fondos or group rides or, you know, other long events. I have the rule of early and often. So I wouldn't even wait an hour. If I was going to do a three hour ride, I would be eating within the first half hour. And I'm glad you said that because it is a really common thing that people will wait two and a half hours into like a ride, like a Fondo or something. And then they get into trouble because now they're too depleted and maybe they're completely depleted of glycogen. And now they're trying to play catch up during the ride. And that's, you know, that's a lot more problematic and you're not gonna feel great. Like your perceived exertion is gonna go up significantly if you get there. So if it's a longer ride, I would just have the quote early and often in my mind and I'd already be drinking a sports drink and eating something within the first 30 minutes.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So if it's over 60 minutes, then you need to start early and often.
1: Yeah, and even more over like probably an hour and a half for sure, like 60 minutes, you could just drink water. You know, obviously, depending on the athlete and the goal. There are going to be times that you probably do a 90 minute ride on water. I mean, it's not the end of the world, right? But if you're doing like back to back hour and a half, hard and tense interval rides three days in a row, that, that's probably not going to be ideal because you can deplete all of your glycogen in 90 minutes of hard training. So once you know that, you can think to yourself, okay, like I'm going to go kill it for 90 minutes. I know I can deplete all of my glycogen in that time if I go as hard as I can. So in that case, I should probably have something, you know, maybe halfway through this effort.
0: Yeah, I think it's really individual, like having a baseline understanding of what it could look like is a good place to start. But then your training load during the week, your intensity during the week, maybe you did a race, like there's all these different factors and variables that can affect your fueling strategy. But just understanding the baseline of, you know, what that looks like, I think is a good place to start for people.
1: Yeah. And you make a really good point about, you know, looking at the rest of the week, because if typically like your easy day is Friday, so someone might say to themselves, oh, it's my easy day Friday. I'm really going to cut back on my calories today. But meanwhile, you're planning on riding like four hours on Saturday and Sunday. I mean, you always have to think about like what's coming next versus just the moment that you're in because you're preparing for what was yesterday and then what's tomorrow. So if you depleted yourself the day before and then you didn't recover because now it's your easy day, you're just setting yourself up to to have a pretty heavy legs for the weekend and playing catch up.
0: So that you're kind of touching on one of the topics I wanted to bring up are some of the insidious causes of underperforming and poor recovery. And you just mentioned like if you're not exercising very much one day, but you know that you're going to be exercising a lot in some days to come, not under fueling on your, on your rest day or on your easy day, because those that's going to help you recover from previous days and also fuel fuel you for the days to come. So what are some other pitfalls or, or mistakes that people tend to make when it comes to fueling?
1: Yeah, a oh, really good question. Um, I should probably preface that this comes through my own lens and my own experience, which is predominantly with cyclists and triathletes and some runners. So if I was a football coach, my answer might be very different. So from my experience, one of the biggest, I'd say, mistakes that athletes make, or cyclists make, is just not eating enough carbohydrates. And depending on the athlete, I find in the teenage population, um, unfortunately, they're there seems to be like a fear of carbohydrates for a lot of teenage athletes. So I'm not sure if that comes from peers and dieting and magazines, um, or even from their parents, right? So if a a parent is at a stage in their dieting, and then, you know, they're living in the same house, a lot of times they're buying the groceries and there's obviously conversation, but wherever it comes from, there does seem to be that uh, fear of carbohydrates in a lot of teenage athletes and even in all level of athletes. So I don't want to just ostracize that group because I see it in masters athletes as well. So that would be a big one. And I see how that impacts athletes in many ways. So one is that they become diesels. So they're really good at riding one pace. But if the group ride gets to a short kicker of a hill, like they just blow off the back because they literally don't have the glycogen to enable them to hit the top end, which also means they're not training their top end because they're always glycogen depleted. So they're kind of, you know, it's really difficult to improve the way you ride when you're literally not fueled. And for anyone listening, you know, it's important to have carbohydrate, which is stored as glycogen in order to do repeatable top end, high end intensity intervals. So if you're just chronically on a lower carbohydrate diet, that really impacts you that way. The other way I see carbohydrates impact athletes is when not only do they not eat enough uh, during the day in their daily nutrition, but also during the ride. And then what can happen is it really backfires. And I've done this. I've made all these mistakes myself, by the way. So I felt like I'm immune to these. I have bonked, I have cramped, I, I've done it all. So You know, it's when you get home from a ride, you haven't eaten enough or you weren't, um, you didn't have enough glycogen stores when you went into the ride and anything is appetizing. So your quote unquote willpower, which, you know, (laughs) could be low, low blood sugar kind of makes you make. poor choices. And so what happens is you end up eating more poorly when you were trying so hard to restrict in the first place, but now you're ravenous and, you know, you're chugging out of the orange juice jug or, you know, eating a whole slab of pancakes or a leftover pizza that typically if you had eaten and then eaten and drank on the ride, you just get home and yeah, you'd be hungry, but you wouldn't want to like gnaw your arm off. So I find that that often backfires for athletes and what I've noticed is when you start eating enough carbohydrates, a couple things. The cool thing about it is that you notice really quickly, right? So there aren't a lot of magic bullets out there. And I'm not going to say eating carbohydrates is a magic bullet. But in a day, you can replenish your glycogen store. So you can have very different legs the next day and be a lot peppier. But also, you'll find that, you know, that athlete who is under eating, restricting, And then eating a lot of sweets later in the day will often not have as many sweets cravings because they're not ravenous. So and psychologically, they're not just grabbing for anything. So that's probably one of the biggest ones that I would see. But, you know, there are are many. How about caffeine? So not intentionally thinking about your caffeine strategy and that's, you know, going to impact your sleep. So then you have to ask yourself, okay, if you're cognizant of it, let's just say you're in a stage race or you're going for a late afternoon ride. So if you're in a stage race, let's say it's a double double day and you're, the crit is at 6 p.m. So a criterium where you race like one to two kilometer loops. And then you have coffee before it because it's such like an intense event, but now you're possibly interfering with your sleep at night. So the the timing of caffeine, or even people not really testing that out in training, and suddenly, you know, everyone on the team's having coffee before, you don't usually drink coffee, but you're going to have coffee too. And then maybe you really pay for that because your intestines aren't cooperating, or it makes you anxious. And Nancy Guest out of Toronto UFT did some research to show that some people actually perform worse with caffeine. So timing your pain, drinking too much, or not testing it beforehand in training, that would be another kind of nutrition mistake that I see. And I think another one would be hydration. Hydration would be a big one. And when we started talking, you were speaking about daily nutrition and you know where does it differentiate from sports nutrition. And I think a lot of athletes, from my experience, will get – will get really dialed in on their hydration during training. But then they'll barely drink the whole rest of the day. So a lot of athletes are going into their training dehydrated, and they're just chronically dehydrated. So focusing on drinking, like from the moment you wake up and drinking throughout the day, looking for like nice pale urine, unless you're eating asparagus or eating beets or taking B vitamins, that's going to throw your the color of your urine off. But yeah, just being dehydrated in general is probably a really common glitch, so to speak, in all athletes and even non-athletes. Like it's it's amazing how many people just say they didn't have anything but a cup of coffee all day. And you know how important that is. I mean, it's so important for, you know, power and dehydration can really impact your ability for your muscles to operate properly. So, yeah, that would be three common ones that I see. I mean, there are so many different things that, you know, could be problematic, but those are probably really common.
0: What's a good baseline for people to go for in terms of how much carbohydrate to eat? Because I'm sure people listening are like, Oh, am I eating enough carbohydrate? Well, how much do I actually need?
1: Yeah, that's definitely a context question. So, you know, you would need to think about how many hours a day are you training. And then based on that, you know, how many carbohydrates you need to eat I can actually link you to a really nice chart that kind of shows you know if it's an easy day maybe you're down at three to four grams of carbohydrates per kilogram of body weight but you know if you're up in the three to four hours of training every single day like my guess is going to be that you're certainly eating seven eight ish you know maybe even nine grams ever read the article I think it was Chris broom ate like oh my god it was insane maybe 16 grams per kilogram of body weight carbohydrates in the tour for one stage because his sports nutritionist logged it and shared it. So that was pretty astounding. But yeah, it really depends on, you know, what are you doing that day? And then as you mentioned earlier, what are you doing the next day? So I know I'm not answering this as clearly as you would like, because it's so dependent on what you're doing yesterday, what you're doing today and what you're doing tomorrow. But I find that that chart is a really nice, simple kind of just a quick glance and then someone could calculate, okay, so this says, you know, on a easier one to two hour day where it's moderate intensity, I should be eating, you know, four to six grams per kilogram. So then calculate that out and then just journal for a day or two. And, and that's the only way you're going to know my way off here or, you know, another, another way to know without journaling is just to ask yourself, am I very inconsistent? do I have an awesome day on Tuesday and I can't even pedal on Thursday? Because you didn't lose all of your fitness in 72 hours. So what's the problem? And, you know, barring that you're ill or something, it's typically that you're glycogen depleted and your legs just don't have it in them to do that type of hard work. So that's a really good way to kind of think about, do I feel glycogen depleted? Am I kind of on, off, on, off, on, off is a very good sign and not being able to do any high-intensity, repeated efforts. But yeah, it's it's a tough question to answer. Sorry if I didn't answer it well, but there's such a range and it's so dependent on how long you're training, how hard you're training and what you're doing the day after.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think you bring up a really good point with nutrition and this is in any area. I was just speaking to my husband last night, just saying how, um, this is a little bit of a off topic, but how like if you eat a plant-based diet, Chances are you have done a lot of studying and research on nutrition and you probably know a lot more about nutrition than like the average person because you have spent that time. And the same goes for athletes. Like there is a lot of time that you need to spend doing your own learning, bringing back the theme of love of learning and that being a strength to figure out what works for you because what might work for one person or what might be like a general guideline that's just the starting point. And then from there, uh, there's so much information out there and experts like you where people can basically hone in on what they need to have a personalized plan. But it starts with that general awareness of, oh, I actually need carbohydrates. Carbs aren't bad. And I need to be eating simple carbohydrates before my workout. And during my workout, I need to eat early and often. And, oh, you mean that I need to eat like a different amount based on like the amount of you know, training I'm doing. So just that general awareness is such a great starting point for people. And then from there, they can start, you know, they can take the ball, so to speak, and start learning on their own what's going to be effective. And the same goes for caffeine strategy. You mentioned like, don't try new things on race day or or like on the day that's an important day to you. And I've definitely made that mistake. And there's going to even be days where things that worked for you in the past aren't going to work for you. And it's just going to be random when you're telling that story, talking about caffeine, I was laughing to myself because in 2010, I raced the marathon world championships <laughs> in Germany. And I was so excited just to be there. And I, in the past, I would use a lot of caffeine for my racing. And I did all this, I had all this caffeine and I had the worst GI upset and I could not perform at all. And it was just so horrible to have that happen at like a world championships. Oh, no. So that's, you know, that happens and, and it's, it's normal to have learning along the way, even, even if you think you have it all figured out.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have, and and sometimes you need to learn more about yourself too. And sometimes you only learn that through those, you know, mishaps. And I remember being in the tour of PEI and I think this was like 2010. Now, you know, admittedly, I have a lot more knowledge now than I did then, but I was still, you know, into sports nutrition and my entire body cramped after the race. I mean, my fingers were cramping between my ribs were cramping. Everything was cramping. Yeah, it was like, it was like is this what rigor mortis is like? And then my teammate, Heather Logan Springer was, was there. I was uh, guest riding for her team. And she happened to be doing her PhD in hydration with Gatorade. And so she had these um, special electrolytes. I can't remember what it was called. It's just like these little packets that Gatorade had. And they had 2,500 milligrams of sodium, but she literally got a couple liters of water, threw them in there and was like, you you need to drink this. You need to drink this. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, like, and, but you know, it turned out that I just, she sweat tested me and I'm a very heavy sweater and salt sweater, and I need 1500 milligrams per bottle. And that's actually apparently not like super high, but it was a lot higher than what I was drinking of sodium. So yeah, it was like a learning experience that, uh, you know, the race didn't go well, but now I know. So same with the caffeine, right? <laughs> it's like sometimes you learn the hard way, but yeah, it is. That's part of the experience, I guess.
0: So a little bit earlier, you talked about fatigue that is related to potentially glycogen deficiency or an or ability to replenish glycogen, and that is inability to do higher efforts, higher intensity efforts, and also feeling inconsistent in terms of energy levels, if we're talking about cycling, inter- energy levels on the bike during the week. And that is probably an example of, quote, not normal or bad fatigue. But there are examples of good fatigue. Like you. if you're training, you're creating a stimulus in your body, and then you're recovering from that stimulus. And you have to have fatigue to get that benefit but you also have to recover and that's also part of the process so can you talk a little bit more about fatigue as it relates to nutrition and what people can be looking for because i think fatigue it's really hard to be able to know where to even start if you feel tired or things are feeling a bit off
1: yeah that's a super interesting question i think you know if someone is really trying to determine where their fatigue was originating from i In a sense, nutrition would be so integral to figuring that out because if you did dial in your nutrition, A, it's going to go away or it's not. And then you'd be able to narrow in a little bit more on recovery from a training perspective. So I think if someone was always exhausted, um, I definitely would start with hydration. You know, a lot of people are just chronically dehydrated, which can make you feel very tired overall caloric intake, right? So just, you know, I know journaling isn't perfect, but how do you know where to go if you don't know where you are? So you have to start somewhere and get an idea of what you're consuming so that you can see, is there, you know, a gap that I need to bridge here or or not? And if not, then it's like, okay, now something else going on. And of course, we can never um, rule out medical reasons. So definitely speaking with your doctor, if you know, if you do tune into your n- nutrition and whether you're knowledgeable enough to do that on your own or you hire someone to help you, just once you've dialed that in, you know, of course, there's the caveat that not everybody is willing to, right? So that's kind of a different topic altogether. But if you're willing to eat the energy that you need to do the work and then you realize, oh, I feel amazing, my fatigue is really elevated. Versus you do that and then you're still exhausted. And I think this is where, you know, depending on the coach and the level of the athlete, it can always differ, but you have to be willing to use your voice and speak up to your coach. And, you know, sometimes maybe with younger athletes or maybe at any age, if you just feel like I need to do what's on that paper, no matter how I feel, Well, that can be really detrimental and a lot of athletes won't speak up. So I think it's very important to to let your coach know I'm tired. A lot of athletes think that a rest day is weak or I've seen many training peaks plans where the rest day is not a rest day. Like someone's doing plyometrics on the rest day or they're, you know, still doing what looks like training to me, not like an active spin recovery and that's not my place. I can't uh, step in there. But so that's kind of why I'm saying it now. You know, you should have a rest day or two during the week. And you know, it's a great time to mentally rejuvenate yourself. And maybe you're mentally exhausted. Maybe you haven't had a chance to be social because you're training every single day. So sometimes the fatigue can be related to that. If you know one day and Friday are easy. It allows you to be like, oh, I'm going to train so hard and get these two days in because I know on Monday, I can just relax and maybe I can go, you know, meet a friend for coffee. But yeah, the fatigue, as you said, there could be the good fatigue, right? Where you're at the end of a two or three week build and you and your coach have learned that even though you're tired, you're actually still capable of hitting the power and that you actually perform really well there. So okay, like Sonia, I know you work well in this space, we're going to push through this, because we know you. And, you know, most of the time, this is good for you. But then there's the other fatigue where you're like crying, because you're just so exhausted, and you can't function and mentally you're falling apart. And if you don't speak up during that, like, I think you're just going to burn out. So I think there's a lot about a being willing to go easy, which a lot of, um, Athletes just won't. Like they just they're easy is not easy, and and that's really detrimental to improving because how do you hit your super, super top end if you're never rested? But yeah, so I guess to kind of answer the question, I would start with nutrition because if you improve your nutrition and hydration and realize the fatigue is gone, well, there's your answer. Um, if you do that and it's not gone, I mean, if you don't have a coach look at your own training. And when do I rest? Like, do I rest? Or are my rest days actually rest? Or am I going to the gym on that day? Because I have to do something, right? Then you need to ask some deeper questions. Why do you have to do something? Maybe just go for a walk. But yeah, and then of course, there's always the medical aspect, you know, never rule out that you really think something's wrong, or you're exhausted because you're depressed, right? So there's, there's always that other side of it as well. So there's so many ways, but I think I would really start with nutrition because it often is the reason a lot of athletes are just dragging.
0: And I think this is a really good bridge into talking about supplements, because sometimes you just need to take supplements because it's really hard to replenish what you need from your food that you're eating. And there could be people that would argue with that thought that I just put out there. But it seems like a lot of people take supplements and there's a wide variety of what people take. Like some people just will take like a multivitamin and then other people have like a giant bag of pills. So what are your thoughts on supplementation and what are some supplements that you think people generally would benefit from?
1: Yeah, that's a big topic. You're right. I'm kind of glad you brought it up because actually it could have been involved in one of the nutrition mistakes section, but not always a mistake. But, you know, often I'll I'll get an intake form from a new athlete and there's a supplement section and sometimes I'm just blown away by, (laughs) it's like they needed an extra page. And I'm like, wow, this is incredible. And it's expensive. Right. So it is interesting. And, you know, I think that a lot of times supplements are taken out of hope and, you know, I just want to feel better. And I saw this, so I'm going to take this and I'm going to take that. I think the one thing I would say for some common supplements like calcium or iron, which shouldn't be a common supplement. But sometimes I see those a lot on athlete journals. And then I have to think, okay, well, why do they think they need that? And, you know, if you're taking iron, it should be because a sports medicine physician has told you that you need to take iron. So we don't just randomly pop iron because, you know, that could be unhealthy and have its own consequences. But I think it's so important to come back to are you getting everything? Are you eating enough? Because a lot of people won't be eating enough and so they'll try and bridge the gap with supplements. But let's pick calcium for an example. So you see a food journal, the calcium is really low. The first thing that a lot of athletes will say, well, which supplement should I take? Instead of which foods can I eat? Broccoli. right? Because (laughs) when you take, yeah, yeah, exactly. The dark leafy greens and it's not always milk, right? But I think the, the point there is that there's also so many other nutrients that come in the food besides just calcium. So if you can like bridge a gap like that with food, I would bridge it with food. And you can't overeat calcium in food, but you can over consume calcium supplements. You know, I guess we're not talking about supplements from a performance perspective. So that's a little more broad, but I see a lot of athletes you know, could benefit from taking B vitamins, which can be depleted in sweat. But, you know, there aren't that many supplements with a lot of great evidence is the reality. So from a performance perspective, there's about five. But from an everyday perspective, like, I've not personally read a lot of studies to say that taking a multivitamin will do A, B, and C for you. So I guess it, you know, it's individual. It's like, do you, feel like you have a bit of a safety net, if you take a multivitamin, then okay, take one, but do you really need 20 other things in the cupboard as well? And if you do, why do you need them? So when you answer the why, you know, is it that I'm tired? And oftentimes, it's off. They're all because I'm tired, like everyone's trying to get more energy, and you're going to get more energy from food than you are from a cupboard full of supplements. So I think that the person with 20 supplements in their cupboard might wanna just back up a bit and see first what would happen if I did this with food. But the problem is that's more difficult. So I think the mindset might be sometimes, well, if I just pop all of these, then I can get all those nutrients and I'll feel better. But the nutrition intake might still be low. So you're still exhausted. There's no calories in these supplements. So why would they necessarily do that unless they have some really good evidence to back them? And, you know, caffeine is the only one that I can, besides maybe like chewing nicotine or, you know, chewing gum or focus. But otherwise, you know, they're not going to give you energy necessarily. They might be involved in energy metabolism, but they're not going to give you energy so yeah, I would always go back if you're looking at your cupboard of 20 supplements and ask yourself why and keep asking after the next why. Well, I'm tired. Well, why? Okay. And then am I even eating enough? Am I trying to fix that with all of these? So yeah, I don't know if that
0: answers the question. Yeah. And another, another thing is like, am I sleeping enough?
1: <laughs> oh yeah, that's huge. I can't believe we haven't talked about sleep yet. That's such a good point because it you know, from a, even when you said fatigue, right? So from a recovery perspective and a fatigue perspective, sleep is yeah so powerful and you can do everything right. Even nutritionally, as soon as you're not sleeping, like you're still putting yourself at a disadvantage. So that's a really big one. And then you might have a cupboard full of pills to help you sleep. In which case I would really go to the doctors, right. And make sure that, you know, you don't have sleep apnea or something else first. And then I recently did a podcast with Amy Bender and she had some great suggestions on sleep. So really getting a lot of daylight exposure, exercising at certain times of the day. And you know, the answer wasn't in the supplements, it was in cognitive techniques that could help you fall asleep, like thinking all of the words that you could think of that start with an R. And I got to tell you, I tried this. I'm very fortunate. I'm an awesome sleeper. But I tried it and I can't believe how well that works, just lying there and thinking of every word I can that starts with an R. And then the next morning I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I fell asleep. (laughs) But yeah, for sure, from a fatigue perspective and supplement perspective, maybe you just need more sleep, that's huge.
0: Yeah, another one, she's actually been on my podcast as well. But another one I like, it's from actually one of the sleep meditations. It's counting down from a 1000. And it just gives your brain something sort of mundane to do so that you're not going down these paths of anxiety. And it's so mundane that you actually fall asleep. That's amazing. And math's not my favorite subject. So that might cause me anxiety. I'm just kidding. <laughs>
1: No, that's good. I know. I've tried some of these with my daughter, but she's not interested yet. She's too young. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one.
0: What about vitamin D?
1: Yeah, it's so funny because I just uh, shared an article this morning that someone had written about vitamin D. I mean, vitamin D is different because in the northern latitudes, like up here in Canada, it's recommended that we take vitamin D year round. And so that's not only because we're covered in snow suits, but also because even if we were going to put tinfoil out on the snow and try suntanning, the latitude of the sun just isn't at the right angle in order to help you synthesize the vitamin D through your skin. So even I'm sure in uh, northern parts, I think it's something like under 36 degrees latitude. Can't remember the exact, but you can easily Google that one. But yeah, it's recommended to take it year round. So that's definitely one of those supplements that is a little bit different. It is also more difficult to get from food. So you know, in the summer months, it's not a problem because we're getting so much sun on our skin unless you're slathered in sunscreen from head to toe every time you walk out the door. So it it would require you to not wear sunscreen for about 10, 15 minutes to get your vitamin D and then go inside, put it on and then go out. So that's something to keep in mind, because if you're protecting yourself from the sun all year round, then you you would take it all year round, regardless of even if you lived uh, somewhere within the southern hemisphere. So yeah, that's one that I would recommend. I mean, there are supplements I do believe in. I mean, I take myself, I take fish oil, and I take vitamin D. I don't take calcium unless I know, you know, my my brain has become after 15 years, a bit of a calcium calculator. So I kind of know when I think about my day. So if I know that, you know what, I was probably off like three or 400 milligrams today, then I'll take calcium. But otherwise I try and consume it. And besides that, yeah, I mean, I've I've totally tried supplements that probably have no evidence behind them, right? So I'm not going to say I've not done that. I've definitely taken greens powders before. But from a performance perspective, there are supplements with good efficacy behind them. So caffeine, beetroot juice, creatine, beta-alanine, and I feel like I'm missing one important one because there's always five when I think about this. Yeah, but they they have a lot of research behind them and they have been shown to improve performance depending on the context of the sport. But again, when you think about, you know, a couple of those that I just mentioned, so beetroot juice, you mentioned, uh, we talked briefly about not trying something new on race day. So you can get a beetroot juice concentrate but I've met athletes who told me they're juicing their beets and drinking like five to 700 milliliters of beet juice before they train. And a lot of people that just does not sit well in the GI tract. So, you know, it's all about you know making sure that you test something like that out. But yeah, some supplements definitely can help with performance. But I would say that most supplements, you know, even the ones that can help with performance, some of them can be uh, marginal gains. And you're going to get a lot more by
0: maximizing your nutritional foundations. And then the the cherry on the cake, really. And the last topic I actually want to get into is kind of a flip. So we've been talking about eating for performance, like you need to eat calories and not just rely on supplements, you need to eat carbohydrates. But it seems like especially cyclists, and maybe even runners, like with strength to weight ratio, and like pressure from even coaches to like be as lean and light as possible. And that makes your relationship with food like different and your perspective of like, well, I need to eat as little as possible and so that I can perform. So that shift is something that is, that was a big shift for me, actually, it was really helpful with my plant based diet change, because I used to look at food as like, how little can I eat? And you know, how light can I be? And it it wasn't effective for me. (laughs) And then after I started eating plant-based, I actually don't even think about that anymore. And I got to a weight I wanted to be at just from eating like whatever I wanted in in the whole foods, plant-based realm. But people's relationship with food is really challenging, really emotional. There's a lot of triggers involved. There's a lot of disordered eating that happens amongst both male and female athletes. So I'm trying to think of a specific question, but it's, it's just a topic that I think is a really important topic that we should talk about here and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah. So are you asking about like under eating or kind of restriction or just in general, people's relationship with food?
0: I'm I'm asking about the people that are trying to be as light and lean as possible, but still need to fuel and have a good relationship with eating.
1: Yeah, that's super important. It kind of makes me think of reds. I don't know if you have that in your mind when you're mentioning this, but So a lot of athletes are certainly restricting. One of the first things we talked about was um, some of the mistakes. And one of them would be the fear of consuming carbohydrates. So with cycling, definitely a, you know, can be a power to weight sport. And culturally, there's a lot of old school mentality that still exists about how to attain a good body composition, uh, quote unquote, good, but What I find is that the athletes who, like yourself, have realized that if you meet your energy needs with wholesome food, you actually will have a better body composition and more consistent long-term performance than if you're chronically restricting. And I think the place that this goes wrong is when someone first starts restricting food, And so let's say there's like this early success, let's just call it success, even though it's it's really not success, but, you know, you're quoted on your team as the climber. And now you're like, oh, you know, you're getting all this feedback, you're climbing so well. And so you start cutting back a bit because you want to climb even better and it works at first you're like oh you know I dropped some weight I'm climbing even faster and then you're getting more like pats on the back oh my god you're you're doing so well and that really perpetuates that behavior and so sometimes there can be like that short-term kind of success but it becomes problematic when it's chronic and then that's when you can run into the concerns with relative energy deficiency in sport, in reds. And so it, what we've seen in research is that athletes that actually need their energy needs actually have better body composition. And when you think about that, it, it makes sense because if you're chronically under eating, I mean, you're going to lose muscle, right? So now your body composition is not going to be as good. Obviously, there's a difference between an eating disorder and what we're talking about. So we'll park the eating disorder and not be talking about, for example, anorexia, which is something very different. So for talking about maybe I guess we could quote unquote, disordered eating, and you're restricting. So I mean, there's so many pitfalls to that. And there's so much, I would say, as you said, there's so much emotional and mental connection to what's probably happening there. And is it, you know, are you trying to Please your team is the organization giving you messages and or actually telling you not to eat. So I definitely know female cyclists where the doors had locks on them in the team house and you weren't allowed to eat until the team was going to eat. So there are, are some really concerning things that um, have occurred in the past. I don't know if they're still occurring, but you know, it's so important to have people on teams or in clubs that have a healthy perspective of eating and food and it's not to say that you know you as a super healthy athlete that has now found this way to keep a body composition that works really well for you it's not to say that there can't be an acute period of time during the season where you decide that I'm going to do this race and I tried this in the off season I'm going to do an acute like 2 3 week you know, quote unquote, leaning out. But, and sometimes what's problematic is people see pictures of athletes in that body composition. And they think they're like that all year round. You know, you want to do that properly with someone that knows what they're doing. I think it's problematic when someone wants to stay that lean all year round. And I see that a lot. So they always want to be at race weight. And that's where you start running into problems with things like sleep, with things like nagging injuries. Uh, you just can't recover. Your endurance isn't as good. And these are all things related to that low energy availability that underpins this um, notion of reds. And it's very far reaching, right? And including like bone health, which you might not feel, but, you know, is very important. So it's difficult, right? Because I think, So much of this is psychological, but a lot of it is also education and realizing that if you fuel yourself properly, you're going to be able to build muscle, you're going to be able to train harder, which means you're going to get faster, right? So if you want to be a better athlete consistently and have longevity in your career, and I'll use Leah Kirchman as an example, because we did a podcast a year ago. And we talked about how she's a really consistent athlete in the women's pro peloton. And she really takes seriously like fueling for the work and she's not restricting. And it reflects in her consistency because she's not getting injured all the time. She's constantly up there in the performance. And I think having role models like that is super important. And then having them talk about or even uh, Ruth Winder coming out, like these athletes that are coming out talking about their experiences with Reds. And that was specific to, I'm a climber. I need to be smaller. But then starts eating more to meet her energy needs and wins the Nationals on a long, solo, insane effort. But I mean, because like she's fueling so well. So those Types of examples are so powerful for us to go the other way versus what's been historically like, you know, let's go on five hour rides with Diet Coke. I mean, this is not healthy. Now let's look at these athletes now who have paid the price and some lucky, some not so lucky, right? Some have recognized and been able to get the help and then come out the other end and others quit the sport because you're just broken and exhausted. And so I think you have to ask yourself if you're constantly restricting, you're mentally crumbling, maybe you're not even having fun anymore. Like, why am I doing this? And there has to be a healthier way because I used to love the sport when I first started. Kind of went on a tangent there, but yeah, I mean, to me it's, it's very mental and organizational. And then of course there's the whole element of, of reds, which is a topic in, in itself.
0: I think that was a really great summary and discussion of restricting calories and how we should be considering that in our athletic lives. So, Anne, this was such a great podcast, and there's a lot of information for people, and it's a, a really great example of the fact that this is just the beginning. If you're just starting to go on your nutrition journey, start doing your own learning about yourself and work, either work with a professional or just start looking for information and studies to read so that you can be better. Where can people find you and also your podcast?
1: Yeah, thanks. I love chatting with you, by the way. And it's great to have someone who has been there, done that and still doing it. So I'm sure you, you would probably have a lot to say about what we spoke about today as well. So thanks for some of the input that you gave. I am on Twitter at Guzman Nutrition. So I do a lot of sharing and communicating there with other scientists and athletes and also the Pro Kit, so I do a lot of my original articles on ProKit.com, which is a great new platform for athletes where you can get a lot of quality information. And then my Instagram is probably a little more fun and uh, you know empowering side of me, but I do share some sports nutrition things as well, and more more so about you know mindset and mental things and learning and everything, but. Yeah, that's probably the places where you'll find me the most on social media. It's too hard to catch up on everything and be everywhere. I've recently checked out this clubhouse, which could easily be addictive. But yeah, so far, I'm, I'm more so listening there right
0: now. Awesome. Well, thanks so much.
1: No, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: I hope you guys got a lot out of that podcast. I certainly learned a lot talking to Anne, and I can't wait to have more conversations with her. Make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Imperfect Progress, and it's about sports science, nutrition, and navigating change in life. Thanks so much for being here, you guys. Rate, review, and subscribe, and do all the things that you love to do when it comes to getting the podcast out there. And I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day.